I'll be reading from Titus chapter 1, and I'll begin in verse 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Lord Jesus, you are the leader of your church and in your providence, you ordained elders. Father, help us to be reminded and to learn what is so important to know from this text regarding leadership. In Jesus' name, amen. In the years that I have been preaching, one of the things that I say to myself is, who is sitting out there in the audience who sort of breathes a sigh of relief and says, whew, this isn't for me, this is for somebody else. And, and it's possible that there's somebody out there in the range of my voice who's saying, am I glad this is about elders. Um, that it gets me off the hook. And that's why I had those last verses of chapter 1 read. When you look at, at the context of this, the same is true as 1 Timothy chapter 1. The writing is being done because there are people in the church that are disrupting and they need to be straightened out. In fact, in 1 Timothy, Paul doesn't say anything about appointing elders. He just talks about qualifications for elders because I think it's more about removing than appointing in 1 Timothy. But when you look at chapter 3 of Titus, listen to how it, it nearly ends. A couple more verses follow, but listen to this. Titus 3, verse 9. But shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after the first and second warning, 
knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. In chapter 1, in those verses that were uh, read, uh, in verses 10 and following, it talks about rebellious people. And by the way, that's one of the things that an elder is to deal with in his children is rebellion. Rebellious people. And they profess to know the Lord, but Paul says all the evidences in their life is that they don't. So you really have unbelievers who are somehow a part of the church causing all kinds of problems. And it seems to me that what Paul is saying to elders is because elders are examples of how to deal with disobedience. And if all parents need to deal with disobedience in their kids, and they do, and the church needs to deal with disobedience and rebellion within the church, then it isn't just about elders. The elders is just one small piece that then plays out, I think, amongst the greater part. So here's what I want to do. I want to deal with this the whole matter in this text in sort of three ways. The first question is to take the, the, uh, the issue is to take the question that's at hand, and that is, must elders' children be believers? You know there are some fairly well-known people who say yes, and I have to confess, I don't know how they do it. I do not know how they do it. To me, the evidence is rock solid that that is not the case, and that's what I'm going to try and show you. Second thing is, well, what do we do as elders with disobedient children? Let's set aside whether they're saved or not and talk about whether they're disobedient and rebellious. And the third is, what does this say to all of us, and especially parents, about how we deal with rebellion and disobedience in our children? So let's talk about, first of all, whether or not an elder's children, by the way, did you notice that? It doesn't say child, it says children. And if I read it right, that means all of them. Now, where's Reese? <laughs> every, time, every time you have a new baby, folks, what does the elder do, resign? It doesn't make sense to me, we'll get to that, all right. So the first thing we need to really keep in mind is, uh, what epistle are we dealing with? You've got two epistles that talk about elders and qualifications, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus in chapter 1. These are very different churches, folks. In 1 Timothy, you're dealing with the church at Ephesus, an established, very well-taught, mature church. And you'll notice, by the way, they have deacons as well there, whereas in these early immature churches, they're, they're, they're not big enough, well enough developed to have that layer of administration. But what you have in, in, in Titus is Titus is in Crete. These are brand new baby churches. In fact, when you go back to Acts chapter 14, you remember when Paul goes out in his first missionary journey and he's in Iconium and Lystra and so on, they go out, they preach the gospel, churches are founded on their way home, they appoint elders. Now, I have to tell you, it seems to me that the level functionally of elders in Crete is not going to be the level of elders in, uh, in Ephesus. In fact, in, in 1 Timothy 3, it says that an elder is not to be a new convert. Well, I don't know what you call those guys in Acts 14, but they're sure not old-timers in the faith, are they? 
And so you have, you have differences between these two churches, and, and it, would, it would be strange for me to say this set of standards that is applied to baby churches with first-time elders ever, that somehow the standard is higher than it is for Ephesus. And yet when you say all of his children must be believers, my goodness, how does that work? Here's a guy who has a wife. Some of them have several wives. Now, that's another problem for elders to deal with. But they have several wives and, and unbelieving children. How do you expect that to turn around on a dime? What kind of time frame do you put on one of those new elders about children coming to faith? I don't see how it works. Well, that's the first thing. Remember the epistle we're dealing with. That's Titus. That's Crete. That's baby churches. And he is told to appoint elders in those churches, although not so specifically in Ephesus. Uh, secondly, I would say this. I've tried to show you the difference between Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy 3, but I don't want to overemphasize those differences. Surely 1 Timothy 3 has something to say to us about how we understand Titus chapter 1, don't you think? I mean... When you look at the qualifications, they're virtually the same in those two uh, texts. So what do we learn from 1 Timothy chapter 3? Listen to this. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? That's a management question, is it not? That's talking about how a father, as an elder, how a father, who is at least considered to be a, for an elder, how that father manages his family. It's a management question. And, and so when you come to this uh, matter in, in uh, Titus chapter 1, believing children, is, that really, is it really a question of management, whether your kids are saved or not is somehow an administrative matter? Come on. Hey, you Calvinists, I'm coming. I'm coming to the point theologically, but hold your seats. I'm just saying that's what it says, management. And remember, the whole context here is how a man deals with his family is a prototype of how we expect he will deal with disobedience in the church. If he doesn't deal with it, if he's got brats for kids that are chaos in the church, you think he's going to deal with it? Rebellious members? Come on. Okay. Third, let's look at specific words. Now, I have to tell you, the word child, I can't help you with that one. That, the, the, the meaning for child is all over the map. Little ones, big ones, boys, girls. You just can't define age by that child. As a matter of fact, that's what Paul calls Titus. He calls him my true child. Same word. So you just can't go there. It, the word itself is not definitive. Something else has got to tell us what it is. Now, the word pistos is. Pistos is a word that is used many times, many times in the Old Testament. Most of the time in the Old Testament, Greek translation, many times in the Old Testament, uh, it means faithful, reliable, trustworthy. And a lot of that is about God. God is faithful, 
trustworthy. There are a few times where it may talk about believers, but that's, that's really rare in comparison. When you look at the word pistos in Paul's epistles to the Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, that word occurs 18 times. 18 times pistos occurs. 12 times it means faithful. Six times it means believing. Two to one, folks. Two to one. Ah, got something better for you. Three times it occurs in Titus. Twice it means faithful. Once it means believer. Listen to this. Titus 1.9. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. Trustworthy word. Reliable word. Titus 3.8. This is a trustworthy statement. Concerning the things I want to speak to you. Reliable. Trustworthy. And then you have, of course, verse 6, whether or not we render it believing. I asked Joe to read from the New American Standard because it, along with some others, renders it believing, and frankly, inexplicably so in my mind. I don't know how they do it, and and as we go on, maybe you'll agree you don't know either. It is used of believers. For example, in 1 Timothy 4.10, it says, "For uh, it is for this that we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Okay, I give it to you. <laughs> that's, that's a place. But it's only half as often as the word faithful. Same word, how you render it obviously has to be rendered somewhat in context, which takes me to grammar. Having, the the text that we read said, having believing children not accused of dissipation and rebellion. Now, I grant you the comma's not in the Greek text, but that expression, not accused of dissipation and rebellion, is an explanation of what the word pistos means. What is a faith, what does a faithful child look like? Well, they're not guilty of dissipation, that's sort of the prodigal son kind of conduct, and rebellion, just rebellion against authority. Well, how does that describe a Christian? How does that help me understand what a Christian is? If you were to ask me, give me a description of the essence of what a Christian is, those wouldn't be the words I'd use. If, however, you're talking about children that are reliable, trustworthy, then not accused of dissipation and rebellion fits to me, and it fits better. Fifth, what's the reason why these qualifications are here? I've already cheated and told you, but I'll tell you once again. The reason is because the churches that are being planted have false teachers and they have unbelieving, professing believers who are unbelievers, who are rebellious and who are teaching wrong things and living wrong lives. Titus, it says, uh, you know, evil bellies. I'm going to slump down below the podium for that. But you know what I'm saying? They're gluttonous. Uh, Second Peter, the false teachers, they're self-indulgent people. Well, that's what we're seeing here is the reason why it's important how an elder deals with disobedience and rebellion in his family 
relates to how he'll deal with, with dissipation and rebellion in, in the church. If he can't do it here, he won't do it here. That's what Paul says. All right, that's the fifth point. Isn't it interesting that he assumes some of the troublemakers are not believers? Hey, but they profess to be. They profess to be. That has some implications we'll talk about in a minute. So it seems to me that it's not really, the test is not really the elder's children. The test is how the elder deals with his children. Isn't that right? You're not saying here the character qualities of an elder's child are what we have to look at for him to be an elder. The question is, how does a godly father deal with dissipation and rebellion in the life of their child? Okay, sixth, theology. I finally got there. I got lots of points left, but theology. Did Paul all of a sudden cease to be a Calvinist? Did Paul all of a sudden, coming out of Romans chapter 9, does he cease to believe in the doctrine of election? You know, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Are you going to go to Isaac and say, bad Isaac, one of your sons is a believer and one isn't? No, God chose one and not another. That's not something for which the parent is responsible. Get me, get me on this now. The parent is responsible to warn. The parent is responsible to teach the gospel. The parent is not responsible for the choice that the child makes. Hey, I've got some good text for this. Listen to this. Ezekiel 18, uh, verse 20. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Ezekiel 18.20. Now, go down to Ezekiel 33, verse 9. But if on your part you warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. See what the text is saying? If you have not given the gospel to someone, if you have not spoken to your child about the need to be saved, there is a guilt that comes on you. There is a responsibility that you have failed to fulfill. But if you have fulfilled your responsibility and that child denies the gospel, this text is saying you're not accountable for their decision. So how can you say that an elder is accountable somehow for whether or not his child believes? How they present the gospel, how they deal with rebellion, fine. Whether they believe or not, it seems to me, is outside the bandwidth of what any person can do, elder or not. Now, here are the practical problems. Just, you know, it, it's fine to deal in the realm of the theoretical, but just think about the practical implications of saying an elder's children, all of them, have to be saved in order for him to be an elder. Uh, first of all, uh, you, you look at the, the situation in Crete. How, how would that work? you got a brand new church, brand new elders, and you're assuming that those men have to have all of their family members saved at that point. I don't see how you can say that. I don't see how it can work. Uh, does it mean that every child 
has to believe. If you take the word believers, I think it does. If you're talking about children who are rebellious and, and disobedient and so on, I think it means that too. If you have a child who is rebellious and disobedient and you have not managed that, it is your responsibility. You may have a bunch of compliant kids otherwise, but you're going to be on the, you know, you're going to be on the responsibility side of what you've done. What is having a child as a believer? What does that say about an elder's character? I'm not sure that you can really link those two exactly. I'm going to come to an example. I'll tell you who it is, and we'll come to it later. Samson and Samson's parents. That's a very interesting situation where you've got godly parents who are greatly concerned about their child's faith and about how they're to raise him. And from what I can tell, they did everything they could. Nobody says bad parents uh, on, that, on that level. Well, what happens, for example, when you do have a new baby? I, I was thinking of a friend of mine from seminary, and he had three girls that were... Uh, were young ladies, but all professed faith in Jesus. And all of a sudden, his wife got pregnant. Well, all of his children aren't believers. What, do, you, do you just step down every time you've got an unsaved child that comes along? Is, is that what it takes? It, to me, it doesn't make sense. It, it's just not practicable. All right. Uh, what about the profession? Is a mere profession... Enough. As I was preparing for this, uh, something came to my mind from back, way back in my history from another church and when I was much younger. The pastor of the church had several children, but one of the kids was the bad boy, and I had him in Sunday school class. So I know, I have some idea how bad he was. And it was very interesting. The kid would hang by the nap of his neck and count the ceiling tile. I'm not kidding. While you're teaching. And you're saying, oh man, this kid is a lost cause. He had another son which was super spiritual. Almost uncomfortably spiritual. Have you ever known somebody, no, have you ever known somebody like that? They're just so spiritual. They're like, what is wrong with this guy? <laughs> the wayward son is a pastor of a church. The spiritual son renounced his faith, has no walk with the Lord at all. So all I'm saying is, you know, you, you got to be careful when you're looking at, at children and, and somehow making assessments about where they stand with the Lord and where they're ultimately going to be. It's, it's a practical problem. So it seems to me that we have to say it's an unrealistic expectation for any parent, not just elders, for any parent that somehow all of their children must be believers. That just doesn't really fit. By the way, I was thinking about uh, Eli. You've got to watch your translations, folks, not only when it comes to the word believing, but I was reading in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, I think it's verse 13, and it basically says uh, that uh, God says to Samuel, Eli had rebellious sons and he did not rebuke them. No, actually he did. Go back and read chapter 2. 
He said to his sons, why are you doing this? I think the better translations say, in effect, he didn't stop them. See, he was the, was the guy who could have said, you guys are out of a job. You know, turn in your badge, you're finished. Just to speak to the boys and say, bad boys, was not enough. He had to do what he could do within his realm of authority to stop it. So we're not just talking about verbal rebuke. We're talking about whatever it takes within our realm of authority to deal with rebellion and disobedience. All of that's to say, I think I uh, can, can say with confidence, my fellow elders and I believe that the scriptures do not require that an elder has to have all of his children to be believers. The elder is responsible to manage his family well when disobedience and rebellion and dissipation comes. But how you deal with it is not the same thing as saying the outcome is what you want. And really then, the question becomes, what is the example for other people in your church who have wayward kids? Can they look to the elder and say, I think I see some clues as to how I need to deal with this. That's what I believe an elder is to do, is be an example. And we're in a wayward generation, my friends. So, next step. Assuming it does not say that children, all children of elders must be believers. What do we do about that description, not accused of dissipation or rebellion? Uh, that, I think, frankly, for me as a parent, that worried me more. <laughs> and, and think about this functionally. How many of us as elders, how many of us as parents have not had periods in your life, and I'm really saying periods in your child's life, where you're saying to yourself, oh my goodness, where's this kid going? You know, I, I mean, at what point do you say, okay, this is the end, it's all over. There were some times when you thought it might be the end. But, but the reality is all kids go through certain phases which, you know, just make you, make you pray. I need to go backwards because I left out a couple of practical things. If an elder believes that he can only be an elder if his children, all of them, believe, how much pressure does that put on him to get early professions from his kids? This scares me, folks. This really scares me. It's the subtlety of a parent saying, oh my goodness, my kids have to be saved. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to let my child know this is really important. Well, it is important. But I got to tell you, I, I'm not a Dr. Reese, but I, I, I talk in evangelism about forceps evangelism. You can go in there and yank them out of the womb if you want. You can't, not me. You, you, can, you can bring them out that way, or you can allow the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But it seems to me when a, when, when a father becomes so intent on his kids being believers, he is tempted at least to press that child uh, to make a profession which in time may not prove to be genuine. That, that to me, I think, is a reality we have to keep in our heads. The other thing is this. If you say that an elder's child, all of them, have to be uh, believers, or even that they have to be free of dissipation and rebellion, 
What kind of a standard do people hold for preachers' kids? I'm, I'm speaking now, obviously, my own experience. But, you know, if, if you're a leader in a church and your kids have to be believers, there are going to be people sitting out there who say to themselves, well, if this kid was a Christian, he would. And all of a sudden, preachers' kids and elders' kids, they're held up to some standard that's frankly impossible. They can't fail. They can't do this or that because they're, you know, a leader's kids. That's really, really frightening territory for me. I think we have to be very careful. Kids are kids. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. And I don't care whose child it is, folks. You're going to see some of it. And so are you going to see some of it. That's where it goes. Okay, back on track. So what do we do about a wayward child? First of all, it seems to me that we have to demonstrate that we are dealing with rebellion in, in a proper way. And notice that in 1 Timothy it says, with all dignity. <laughs> That's the hardest one. Have, have you ever found yourself so mad at that kid that you lose it and then you come out looking bad? Because you all smile, and you know, we've all been there, right? So it's not just that we discipline. It's how we discipline. And we discipline in a way that we're in control and that we leave the results ultimately to God. So we should discipline. We should manage well. But we also should do so in a way that is dignified. Oops, that's a tough one. All right, second, these things, I believe, are qualifications and requirements for children while they're under their parents' authority. I, I don't know how you can say that a parent is, is responsible for a child out from under his authority. What about the prodigal son? Are you going to write a letter to the prodigal son's father and say, your kid's in the pig pen? That's really beyond his control. Now, if the father builds the pig pen in his backyard, <laughs> that's something to talk about. But the reality is we are responsible for our children when they are under our authority. And that, that, my friend, diminishes over time. If you haven't figured that out, your kids will let you know because it's going to happen. Okay. So the, the uh, elders are supposed to deal with their children in a way that is dignified and in a way that is an example to those in the church and that gives hope for dealing with other rebellious people than your kids. That's what I think Titus is about. One last point. I, I think you have to say we are responsible for the process. We're not responsible for the product. We are responsible to deal with our children, to lead and to manage in a way that is consistent with God's word. We are not responsible for the outcome. I, I just don't see how you could say that, uh, biblically speaking. So an elder ought to deal with his children in a way that is exemplary, that is, that is a model for other parents, that is a model for themselves and the church as to how you deal with wayward and rebellious people. That's the important thing. All right, now I want to get to some things that I think are applications for all of us that, that flow out of this stuff. One, 
Beware of unrealistic expectations. Beware of unrealistic expectations. And I'm saying on your part, and I'm saying on the part of others. If you're a leader, there are other people who are going to be watching your kids like a hawk. And frankly, some of their expectations may be unrealistic and and damaging because they're holding your kid up to a standard which is, when it says don't exasperate your kids, one way to exasperate your kids is to hold a standard up that's impossible to meet. Okay, no unrealistic expectations. Second, we as members of the body need to be very, very cautious about assigning the responsibility for failure to parents. When children fail, they will, when they fail, we ought not to be pointing fingers too quickly or easily at the parents. Now, it gets better. Point three, when our children turn out in a way that seems to be good, do not take a bow. Do not take a bow. I've, I've seen this within the context of, of my broader family. Is, is I, I know of one part of, of my family where they, they, I think, did many things right about their kids, and their kids didn't believe. And there were other members of the family whose kids seemed to come out right, who kind of looked down their spiritual noses like, hmm, I wonder what you did wrong. I, I want to say this very clearly. We are, Jeanette and I are grateful that our kids, our girls, all love the Lord and walk with him. We're not bowing for credit. Whatever God has done, God has done. And I'll say as a man, whatever God has done to whatever you want to give me the credit, you better be looking at my helpmate. Mothers have a huge role in the lives of their kids. But let's be very quick not to take credit and not to post blame to others, I think, in these matters. Fourth, if you haven't realized it yet, you will. You are not in control. If you you watch this stuff, this part of our culture, uh, whether it's drugs or whatever, take control of this and that. Baloney. We're not in control. We don't control the decisions of our children. We don't control the outcome of some processes. We just have to do what God says we should do and leave the results to him. We're not in control. And that's why parents have to let go in the sense of saying, and and by the way, I go back to Acts chapter 6. What did the apostles say? We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. I'll tell you what, as a preacher, if you ever deceive yourself into thinking your preaching is what does it, you're wrong. It's the Spirit of God and the Word of God that does it. And the reason that we pray as parents is because it's not in our control. It's in His, and we render that control to Him. Fifth, the nature of the child-parent relationship changes over time. The older you get, the more you'll understand what that means. My mother's going to turn 99 next month. 
There's a strange inversion that happens where the child starts assuming parent roles. No, mom, it won't be that way. Do I like to say that? Do I want to do it? No way. But there's a way in which children become parental <laughs> because they have to. And there are ways in which parents become subordinate and childlike. And, and so we have to recognize, I think, as we're dealing with this whole parent-child thing, things change over time. And that's why when you're talking about what happens and you're talking about children in the context of the home, that's not the same as a child who's 40 years old and lives 2,000 miles away. Sixth, let's beware of false thinking about evangelism and children. I don't know how many times I've heard over the years, more children are saved between the ages of X and Y than any other time in their life. And the inference is, get them, sick them. Let's get those kids while they're young because they're more easily saved when they're six than when they're 60. Is there any biblical basis for that conclusion? Children who are six may be more inclined to want to please their parents. They may be more susceptible to manipulation. But I got to tell you, if we are dead in our trespasses and sins, a six-year-old is as dead as a 60-year-old. When a child comes to faith, it is a miracle that the Spirit of God produces in that child. And I fear that some of us have kind of bought into that, and so we're pouncing on our little kids to get a profession quick while they're still savable, when it just frankly isn't biblically true. All right, here's another one. The way back, the way of repentance is possible and painful. The way back is possible and painful. There is hope. There is hope that a wayward child will come back. Look at the prodigal son, right? Here's the pain, the pig pen. The pig pen is painful. It was that pain which was used of God in that, in that young man's life to say, this isn't right. This is not good. It's better back with my father. It's painful. But the one I was thinking about was uh, Samson. When I went back and looked at the story of Samson, Judges 13, it's interesting, by the way, that Samson's mother's not named. Manoah, yes. I don't know why she's not named. But the angel appears to her, says, you're going to have a child. She was barren. Remember, Manoah says, if you see that angel again, ask him to come and tell us how we are to raise that child. Right? They would have raised him as a Nazarite. I'm convinced in my heart that Manoah and his wife did everything they could to be obedient to God's instruction. And that in that sense, Samson got all the benefits of godly parents. And I got to tell you, for a lot of years, it didn't look like it bore much fruit. Wouldn't you agree? By the way, if you had a kid as big and strong as Samson, you'd have a little trouble putting him over your knee. <laughs> I wouldn't go down that trail. Anyway, here's Samson off on his way. It takes, 
you know, in, in, imprisonment, humiliation, blindness. But let's remember in Hebrews chapter 11, there's his name. By the way, Margaret Quinn's sitting back there, so I'm going to say something about Jonathan. Those of us who went to Bob's memorial service heard Jonathan tell the story of how his father dealt with him and his mother, how they dealt with him. It was a beautiful story of how God brought Jonathan back. I, I got to tell you, I was teaching a Bible study on Tuesday nights, and John brought in everyone but the cat. He did. He drug him in. And after that, when you'd have somebody who was dealing with a problem that was like his, you know what John would say? Give me the tough ones. I love the tough ones. It is possible because it's God who changes hearts. So for those of us who have wayward children or grandchildren or whoever it may be, there is hope. But the process may be painful. And, and I think the admonition to us is, let's not make unbelief and rebellion too comfortable, right? It, it may be the prodigal son thing that has to do it. Eight, the gospel both divides and unifies. Listen to this. When we, when, when we bemoan the fact that we see young people turning away from the Lord, we have to look at this text. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. But I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be members of his own household. When we see kids going astray, when we see families being divided, we shouldn't be surprised. That's what Jesus said. Now here's the flip side. Just look at this text again. Malachi chapter 4. How does that book end with these words? Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. God says, expect some families to be divided. He also says, when the Messiah comes, he will unite families through the person and work of Christ. One last thing I want to say to you. Father's Day is coming up. And, and I've been thinking a lot about the father-son relationship. And, and it seems to me in the Bible, the imagery that God uses for the most intimate relationship between people is father-son. For instance, Adam is called in the genealogies, the son of God. Then you come to uh, Israel in Exodus chapter four. Israel is my son. Why do you think God endured so much with that, with that crummy group of people? Because they were God's son. And by the way, mess with them and find out how important they are to God. Exodus chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14. Israel's king from the Davidic line is going to be a son. And that is what the father says when the Lord is baptized. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I've, I've often wondered when I look at the Old Testament and the New, 
Where's the model father? <laughs> Jacob? You jest. Which one? Abraham? Where's the model father? There isn't. Other than the father. The model father is God. You want to know what fatherhood looks like? Look at God. You want to know what sonship looks like? Look at the son. What does Jesus do? First time he gets hauled in before the religious authorities, he says, just a son doing what his father does. If you want to know more about father-son relationships, look at Jesus and look at his father. That is how we learn about fatherhood. Father, we do thank you for your great love for us, and you have said that in Jesus, we become your sons. What a marvelous truth that is. We bring before you our heart's concerns for members and our family and our friends who are wayward. And we ask that we would be faithful to deal with that in ways that are consistent with your word and your purposes. But we ask that you would work in ways that are beyond our capacity to restore those who are not trusting in you. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen.